Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. You know, we've spent a lot of time on this podcast talking about the senses, breaking down the senses and uh, and getting down to uh, not only the uh, the scientific underpinnings of our sense experience, but also uh, the, the sort of mysteries of it that we take for granted every day. That's true. And uh, scent is one of those things that we often take for granted, but it turns out to be the humdinger of the senses, and we're going to talk about that today. And we thought, well, heck... While we're rolling out scents and smells, we might as well roll out a little Proust. Ah, yeah, Marcel Proust, uh, 1871 through 1922, French novelist, critic, and essayist best known for his novel In Search of Lost Time, a.k.a. The Remembrance of Things Past. Yes, because in this novel, he has what is now known as the Proust moment, this uh, sort of memory that is evoked by a food, and in particular, scent, which is, as we know, bound up with food. Now, this is him describing this shell-shaped cookie called a madeleine. He says, quote, I raised to my lips a spoonful of a tea in which I had soaked a morsel of the cake. No sooner had the warm liquid mixed with the crumbs touched my palate than a shudder ran through me and I stopped, intent upon the extraordinary thing that was happening to me. An exquisite pleasure invaded my senses. Hmm. You know, I think we've, we've all had those moments in our lives where some some scent or some taste associated with the scent uh finds us. Maybe we're just walking down the street and it just and we end up just time traveling in our mind back to some some moment in the past that we uh, we, we maybe don't even think about all that often, you know? Yeah, Smell of a room. And we tend to not even think about how it's acting on our behavior. We've brought this up before. There was a, a study on altruism and freshly baked bread. Mm-hmm. And I won't go into that because it's it's a bit lengthy, but basically people who were smelling this scent we're, we're much more um, inclined to help other people. Yeah. Uh, now, Proust goes on to, uh, to, to, to summarize things a little bit, and he says, When nothing else subsists from the past, after the people are dead, after the things are broken and scattered, the smell and taste of things remain poised for a long time, like souls, bearing resiliently on tiny and almost impalpable drops of their essence the immense edifice of memory. Indeed, and that is that's a sort of thing that's behind the wall of smell, and that's what we're going to look at today. Yeah, it is weird how, like, even the most comforting smells in the world, you know, the the smell of uh, you know of a loved one's hair or skin, or or you know, just the sort of house smells uh, that, that that give you that warm feeling inside of yourself, or you know, a favorite uh, meal, what have you, something with you with rich connections. They're not something. That, that you end up just craving all the time, but but it's only when you actually encounter them that you uh, that they really take hold. Yeah, because it's like taking a book off the shelf of memory. Now, before we kind of get into these more specifics of memory and smell, let's look at a little scent one hundred one. Uh, because think about all of these possible smells surrounding you. I say possible because the scents have to be volatile enough to spew out microscopic particles in the air and then get on your nose's radar system, right? Um, so your kitchen countertops or even this table that we're podcasting at, that is not a volatile material. But let's say Noel, our producer, brings in a little bit of warmed-over cabbage, then all of a sudden that is a huge volatile funk. Now, in the book A Natural History of the Senses by Diane Ackerman, she writes, quote, 
Each day we breathe about 23,040 times and move around 438 cubic feet of air. It takes us about five seconds to breathe, two seconds to inhale, and three seconds to exhale. And in that time, molecules of odor flood through our systems. Inhaling and exhaling, we smell odors. Smells coat us, swirl around us, and enter our bodies, emanate from us. We live in a constant wash of them. And get this. This is really interesting. According to research by Stanford University uh, scientists, that, which was published in a November 4th issue of Nature, each nostril of the human nose is tuned to smell some odors better than others, and the specialization moves back and forth from one nostril to the other. Huh. So one, so a certain smell might be more of a left nostril smell as opposed to a right nostril smell. Yeah. So there, it turns out that there's a difference in airflow of nostrils, and that affects scent detection, which kind of gets you to the question maybe you never even wondered about: Why do we have two nostrils anyway? Yeah. Well, it turns out there's two different systems detecting different odors. Huh. Yeah, I was kind of without really thinking about it, thought it was just so that if snot clogged up one, you still had another one. You know, it's kind of like having a double-barrel shotgun, right? Indeed. All right, so as we've discussed, you have these airborne molecules peeling off of things. A lot of molecules peeling off of something like a uh, freshly baked pie. Uh, not so much with, say, a lump of steel, okay? So these molecules are, are floating around. They uh, they enter the nostrils and then they hit the olfactory epithelium. It's the center of the of olfactory sensation. Now it takes up. We're talking about a mere uh, one square inch of the superior portion of the nasal cavity. Mucus coats the epithelium surface and it helps dissolve these odorants, so they can all they can all be properly uh, uh, taken in. Okay. Then these highly specialized olfactory receptor cells come into play. Uh, these are neurons with knob shaped tips called dendrites. And olfactory hairs that bind with the odorants cover each of these dendrites. Next, with the odorant having successfully stimulated the receptor cell, the cells send an electrical impulse to the olfactory bulb, and that is part of the brain's limbic system. That's going to be key here in a moment uh, because of the uh, limbic system's uh, relationship to memory. Okay. Now, specifically, each olfactory receptor type sends its electrical impulse to a particular microregion of the olfactory bulb. So we've gone from molecule on on all the way up into the brain, and then this is where the sensation of smell as we experience it uh, in our minds emerges. Now, to underscore how important smell is, let me just point out that if you destroy a neuron in the brain, it's finished forever. It won't regrow. Uh, if you damage neurons in your eyes or ears, both organs will be irreparably damaged. But the neurons in the nose, ah, those are replaced about every 30 days. And according to Diane Ackerman, Um, unlike any other neurons in the body, they stick right out and wave in the air current like anemones on a coral reef. And I thought this is such a great simile, especially if you consider some research that was done by the Kavli Institute for Systems Neuroscience. They found that when it came to scent, there are synchronized brain waves of 20 to 40 hertz moving through the brain, and these are. Signals from the nose that translate and they connect to memories in this sort of orchestrated symphony of signals in your brain. And the reason they know that, of course, is rats, as we discussed in our earlier episode, which uh, give us a good amount of information about these types of things and systems in the brain. 
Now, the researchers took 16 to 20 electrodes. They placed them in the hippocampus in the different areas of the anterior cortex in rats. And this allowed them to observe this wave-like action and synchronicity happening during the scent memory acquisition in rats. Now, I mentioned that the olfactory bulb is part of the brain's limbic system. Again, area associated with memory and feeling. The the bulb has intimate access to the amygdala, which processes emotion, and the hippocampus, uh, which is responsible for associative learning. And uh, this, this is key, okay, because it's why smell can call up those memories and powerful responses almost instantaneously, cutting out or almost cutting out conscience remembrance. And the key triggers here are conditioned responses. You smell something, and this links to an event, person, thing, or moment. The brain forges the link between smell and memory. And then when you smell it again, even years later, decades later, the link is already there, lights up again. Now, since we encounter most of these new odors in our youth, because, I mean, you know, there are a lot of smells out there, but you're going to hit some, most of the key ones you know, pretty early on. Uh, since you smell most of them in your youth, uh, smells often summon these strong feelings of nostalgia, mental time travel, taking us back to baked pies of our youth, or, or even it, it's not even necessarily um, a positive, you know, um, or at least a, a subjectively positive smell that we end up having these positive associations with. Uh, it could be something like uh, chlorine in a pool, something that is a harsh chemical, uh, and to some people with a different association, they might, they might not have the same kind of positive swelling of emotion around it. But once that's forged in the brain, that's the connection we take when we smell it again. Uh, and interestingly enough, we even begin making these emotional connections to smells before we're even born. Uh, infants who have been exposed to alcohol, cigarette smoke, or garlic in the womb actually show a preference for these smells later on. And that's really interesting. I've heard before that um, some of your food choices can influence the diet of your child later on. But who knew that even smoke would be something that would be incorporated into the landscape of smell for an infant? Um, now, we're going to take a quick break. When we get back, we are going to look at how smell influenced the formation of the primitive brain. All right, we're back. We're talking about smell. We're talking about, indeed, a very primal sense, if not the most primal sense. Yeah, and if you veer away from humans for a moment and you look at smell and its role in the animal world, well, you see that it becomes, I don't know, maybe 10 or 15 episodes spiraling out of this. So we're not going to go way deep into this. But we wanted to mention some of the ways that the sensory world is interacting um, with scent in organisms. And... That's because it really plays a bigger role, a more integral role in identification and communication. So, for instance, if you think about a tobacco leaf that's being munched on by a caterpillar, well, that tobacco leaf will emit something called a green leaf volatile. And this is a chemical that, once it's airborne, it acts as a kind of SOS to predators of the caterpillar, like wasps. And it's essentially saying to those wasps, hey, there's something, there's, there's this blood sucker on me or this, you know, leaf sucker on me. And it is completely distracted right now. And I know you love a good juicy caterpillar, so swoop down and eat it. And that in, in and of itself is amazing, this kind of chemical communication. But then you consider uh, the research that's been done on rodents and that we can see that rodents can actually detect fear through scent alone. 
or even considering something like a silver tip grizzly, which can smell a carcass up to 18 miles away, which would be really important to a grizzly, right? Because that could be a second lunch, a second breakfast, a snack, you know, any sort of leftovers. And these are just, just a tiny bit of examples of the rich role of scent in the animal world. But it gets even more micro than that. Yeah, and in, and in doing so, it gets even more telling about the, just this idea of smell as this primary sense, the connection between smell and survival. Because in, in the you know your average day, we're not smelling out our dinner. We're not saying, all right, you know, it's time to get some food on the table. Let me go stick my nose out in the air. But uh, we see this. We we see this even in bacteria. Uh, According to a 2010 study from the University Medical Center Utrecht in uh, the Netherlands, uh, bacteria can detect ammonia. Uh, ammonia is a, an important source of nutrients for bacteria, and it causes bacteria to form slimy colonies called biofilms. Uh, and smelling it, identifying ammonia, may help the microbes to locate their food sources and avoid competitors. Now, Critics of uh, of this study, you know, easily say, "Well, that's not smell. You're just you're, you're talking about something far more primitive." But if you break down smell, if you define smell, it's just simply sensing a volatile molecule, sensing key molecules that are peeling off, as, mm-hmm. as we mentioned at the beginning. Then that's exactly what's going on with these bacteria. They, they're not smelling oxygen because they, it doesn't have a smell; it's always there around them. But they can smell an important gas that signals food. Which I think is uh, really root to all animals, right? Because this is the simplest and most ancient form of life from which everything else evolved. And this sort of food detection device would really play into how the primitive brain would develop. So Diane Ackerman's book, again, A Natural History of Senses, goes into this. She writes that chemical detection was so important that the scent sensitive tissue sitting atop the nerve cord developed into a primitive brain. Moreover, and this is probably the most mind-blowing part of this, our cerebral hemispheres were originally buds from the olfactory stalks. Huh. So it's it's one of the prime primal scoops of ice cream on which our, our additional brain scoops were placed. Yeah, I mean, these are sort of the original blueprints, right, mm-hmm. that call back to this ability to detect, detect chemicals. That is like the base stock of the brain here. So much of it is fascinating in that there's a certain level of understanding that we have, conscious understanding about what's going on with our, our sense of smell, and then there's all this other stuff that's going on under the surface. And a great example of this comes from a 2014 study from Monell Chemical Senses Center. Uh, show that, that people can actually smell differences in dietary fat in foods. In other words, the nose knows when you try to pull a fast one on it with low-fat alternatives. Ah. Yeah. So how'd this break down? Well, 108 participants in two locations, Philadelphia and the Netherlands. Uh, and that's key uh, here because we're going to be dealing with, with milk, and uh, individuals in the Netherlands consume a lot more milk than individuals in Philadelphia. Um, so even though they have cream cheese, even though yeah, even though they have cream cheese, uh, the Netherlands are still they're still they're still coming out on top. All right, so these participants uh, they were made to smell samples of milk with varying amounts of fat, and they found that participants could actually distinguish among the samples based on their fat content. And and really, this this makes perfect sense. It's, I mean, it's as simple as this: fatty, high calorie foods equal energy, and energy equals survival. So it makes Perfect sense from an evolutionary standpoint. You want to be able to sniff out the best source of nutrients. Uh, 
Now, it's not learned behavior. It's, it's inbred behavior. Um, I already mentioned that the, the Dutch drink more milk than Americans, but both groups were equally good at sniffing out the fatty goodness. Uh, likewise, participant weight didn't play into the results either. And uh, they made sure that they were isolating just the fat by using powdered milk rather than fresh. Now, there's still some lingering questions here that the researchers uh, are, are looking into. Um, for starters, fat molecules in milk are not very volatile. They don't peel off and float around as easily and therefore shouldn't be that easily smelled. But they think they might be attaching to other compounds that are. Huh. Yeah, especially powdered milk, right? Because mm-hmm. it doesn't have anything to help dissolve and, and create the vapor. Um, I think what that points to, to me, is that humans' ability to suss out smell is you know, a little bit more complex than we thought. I mean, not dog complex. We don't have that kind of sensory world available Mm -hmm. to us. But certainly a little bit more enhanced than we thought. And I wanted to point to this idea um, that, or this previous idea, that it was thought that we could sniff out about 10,000 smells. Well, in 2014, researchers from the Rockefeller University and the Howard Hughes Medical Institute put together an experiment that would blow that ability to detect 10,000 smells out of the water. And the researchers started with bottles of 128 distinct smells. So think about grass or citrus, right? Right. And they mixed up to 30 different chemicals with it to create unfamiliar smells. And they did that because they wanted to really obscure what it was and really have people work with their sense of smell to suss out what sort of chemicals or odors they were sniffing. And so they took three bottles, and two of those bottles were the same, and one was different from it. And they had 26 study participants quaffing these odors. And what they did is they, they calculated the percentage of these mixtures that participants could distinguish. And then they handed that data over to a mathematician who figured out the number of possible unique odors that could be made from the mixtures of the 128 chemicals. Okay, I'm going to guess. It's, right. Okay, it's not 10,000. No. Okay. 20,000. No. 100,000. No. More. 200,000. I don't know. I give up. How many? <laughs> One trillion. Whoa. Yeah. So, okay, here's the thing, though. This doesn't mean that now wine connoisseurs need to start using one trillion <laughs> descriptors if <laughs> that trying. even exists. They're right? They are trying really hard. Uh, but because this is more about distinguishing rather than identifying the smells. Mm-hmm. And it's really no indication that we're actually able to tri- uh, pick up on a trillion smells, because you think about it, you may not even be met with one trillion smells in your lifetime. It's uh, it's more just the, that that's the upper limit of possible sense. Huh. And the reason why they did this study is they, they wanted to discredit that idea of 10,000 smells, because it's from the early 20th century, and it's not really tied to any specific data set. It's just one of some, one of those ideas that arose. Okay. And so this was that um, this was their chance to say no, smell is so much more complicated and nuanced than that, and our ability to detect it, uh, we've been kind of giving it short shrift for a while. We have, and uh, I mean, as far as the senses go, you can sort of look at our, our technology as a good uh, a good way to gauge how much emphasis we put on on it, right? Yeah. Because right now, I can we either of us can pick up our smartphone and we can. 
We can send visual information. We can send auditory information. We've discussed all the different haptic technologies in place where we're, we're, we're a lot of, a lot of people are working really hard on being able to transmit, uh, feeling and touch across, uh, hugs. the internet. Hugs. We've talked about that. But, uh, but where's the smell? Where's the odor? <laughs> where's the stank? Yeah. Well, on uh, June 17th, 2014, the first ever transatlantic scent message was transmitted from New York City to Paris. And Harvard professor David Edwards and his co-inventor Rachel Field, they, they uh, sent an image, an electronic image, tagged with a scent to Le Laboratoire, a contemporary art and design center in Paris. And there, a device called an O-phone decoded the message and reproduced the scent using its aromatic cartridges. Yeah, and that the sent message that is sent, by the way, is uh, the, the sent email, if you will, the sent text message is called an O-note, just, uh, just to get the lingo out there. Um, this, uh, this is a, a technology that is still very much in its infancy. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, like where they are now with it is they're, they're, they're looking at uh, being able to capture somewhere in the area of 300,000 unique scents, uh, and it's... And you'd have to go to an O-phone hotspot to pick one up if somebody sent one to you because it ultimately gets into that area of, of printing smells, of using uh, primary odors as a palette and then using combining those to try and create at, at least an approximation of what you're going for with what you're trying to send. And so the exciting part of this is that scent could begin to be woven into... Uh, these different types of media mm-hmm. that we consume. And so right now we, we have music, right, is, is being woven into the media that we enjoy. And a lot of times we don't think about how powerful that is, that even if it's just background music, it changes the mood. It, it gives your brain a little bit something else to hook onto and reframe the information you're getting. So just imagine if right now you guys were listening to us and we were just piping through some cabbage or, or freshly baked bread and how that might change the way that you're considering the information. Yeah, or even even more than that. It's like when I think about our, our, uh, our use of music, uh, if, if we're listening to music, we're, we're listening to a, a complete composition with various notes that kind of take us on a sonic journey. So I, I, I can easily imagine a time when you plug in, I guess, your nostril plugs or whatever, and uh, and instead of printing just a single smell, without it, without it just being a matter of bread or Cinnabon or, or a certain flower, you, you go on a smell journey, say, through uh, a garden or through the French countryside or a, a spice market in Marrakesh or something of, of that nature. Like it, Once the technology is there and more available, like I, I feel like we'll sort of discover its uses uh, more so than we can sort of predict them. Yeah, indeed, a scratch and sniff podcast in 2020, right? Yeah. And uh, already... There is some use of smells, um, and I'm talking in particular with the scent artist Cecil Tolos, who used scents as a study aid for students, which I thought was brilliant because we already know that when you're trying to learn information that your brain is tagging things in its mind like a map, right? Because right. it's, it's very spatial. And layer upon that some some smells, and you can really get those thumbtacks in a little bit deeper, I think. Yeah, she's she's wonderful. She's the uh, the artist that we we both caught at uh, World Science Festival a while back, if I remember correctly, um, and uh, is big into like don't call it stinky, like t- like yeah. like with children starting early and trying to frame our our linguistic understanding of of, of scent uh, 
in, in a more nuanced uh, way, like more than just, oh, this smells good and this smells bad. Like, what does it actually smell like? Well, and she's really challenging people with smells and what it means to them mm-hmm. and what sort of framework it's it's uh, creating for our existence. Um, we've mentioned her before with the MIT exhibit that she uh, had a wall painted with the sweat of fearful men. Oh, yes. And you would go and smell that wall and smell the fear. And then there was another one that she did. It was with donated coats. And she did the the smell profile, and mm-hmm. I believe that um, one of them contained like Chanel Number no. Five, dog crap, and soy sauce. Yeah, I, I, I mainly remember the dog crap. I think was just that uh, her findings were that there's a certain amount of of poop smell to a, a certain number of coats. Well, and I love that it's contrasted with the Chanel Number no. Five. Yeah, you know, it's a fancy lady, and yet she could not escape the fine patina of feces covering us. And the world. Indeed. you got to scoop it up. That's the, that's the law. Yep. All right. Well, there you have it. Smell, how it works, how ancient it is, and, and when indeed what the, the future of smell might consist of. Now, if you check out the landing page for this episode on StuffToBlowYourMind.com, you'll also find links to previous episodes we've done that have dealt with, with scent as well as other uh, primary human senses. Uh, you'll also find all sorts of videos, blog posts, links out to our social media accounts, all sorts of good stuff at StuffToBlowYourMind.com, the mothership of this podcast. And I bet you have thoughts. Um, specifically, we'd love to know about whether or not you would be open to having a scratch and sniff <laughs> podcast or really any sort of media that would deliver some sort of pungent odor to your nostrils. Uh, you can let us know your thoughts by emailing us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 